them to begin their work immediately, which they did, sitting in front of their looms, weaving their invisible, pretending to weave clothes, but they were invisible, of course, to everyone because they didn't exist. At last, these invisible clothes were ready, and the two con men dressed the king in his clothing, or actually did not dress him, and then got out of town quickly. The king held a parade for all of his subjects to show off his fine clothing. Now, everyone could see that he had no clothing, but no one wanted to be considered unwise and impure, and so they praised the king's clothes, beautiful clothes, until finally a little child said, he's wearing nothing at all. And the king flinched, cringed, because he suspected that it was true, but held his head up and went on proudly, continuing the charade. Today is the third Sunday in a row that we're going to be talking about sin here at at Grace. The wisdom of the world says that there is no such thing as original sin or inherited sin is probably a better word for it. It's more uh, understandable. It's a condition of men and women that automatically puts them at odds with their creator. The evidence is overwhelming that something is desperately wrong with human beings. But we go on saying nothing is really wrong. Any ills that you see are the result of the environment of people or perhaps very uh, harsh religious Uh, beliefs and preaching that have damaged us psychologically and emotionally. But the Apostle Paul argues in Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20, the section that we have been covering these three weeks, the last two and then today, that all of us stand naked and exposed before the judge of the universe who is our creator, and that we stand filthy in our sin before him. Next week, we're going to talk about the cross of Christ, that which the Lord ordained would be the the solution for our problem. That we could be cleansed and we could be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, which would only make us eligible to stand before before the Lord. That only would make us eligible. We will also, however, begin this morning to talk about our response to the Lord in acknowledgement of our sin, what it means to repent. So as difficult as the last two weeks have been, the tenor is going to begin to change today. But before it does entirely, we need to read these verses that are our text, Romans 9, verses 20, where we will be told that every living human being stands guilty before God, Jew, Greek, non-religious, pagan, and the very religious-minded people, all of us, In our sin, if nothing is done about it, stand condemned, ruined before the Lord. In this section that is our text today, the Apostle Paul either quotes or alludes to to several Old Testament verses to make his points. The references will be on the screen. You don't have to write them down now. They'll be up just briefly later. You'll have time if you want to, or you can find them in almost any good uh, study Bible. Would you please stand uh, as we read Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Well, Father, you have made it quite clear through the leading of the Holy Spirit that we are all aware of our sin. And we all need to acknowledge our sin before you. So, Lord, uh, on this last of three Sundays in which we take this hard look at who we are, Prepare our hearts for the good news that Jesus died because of that sin so that we could be reconciled and made right with you. Speak to our hearts clearly this morning. And may we be responsive in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. We do not become sinners because we commit sinful acts. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. We sin because we are already sinners. It's our nature. We can't help it. Do you believe that? Does it make sense to you? Last year when we were studying uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, you may recall that there were a number of debates in the early church back in those first three or four centuries uh, that greatly shaped the way that we think about God, the Godhead now. God the Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one essence. In the same way, there, were, uh, there was a, 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 a huge debate late in the 4th century, early in the 5th century, between Augustine, probably the most influential theologian, apart from the Apostle Paul in the entire New Testament period, uh, between Augustine and Pelagius. This debate has affected greatly the way that we think about sin and look at sin today. Augustine understood Scripture to say that when Adam sinned, he represented all of humanity. And so that the disease that he brought upon himself, that he chose on that day, was now going to be passed along to all of his descendants. All of us are tainted with Adam's sin. We're already in sin when we were born. In fact, Psalm 51 tells us we were conceived in sin. And so it is impossible not to sin. We cannot not sin. It's going to happen. In fact, apart from grace, from beginning to end, we cannot be saved. If God's grace is not present at every step of our moving toward a relationship with Him, we cannot be saved. 
Our sin renders us incapable of pursuing and finding God or making ourselves acceptable to God in any way. When we take a brief look at our text in just a few moments, you'll understand why Augustine believed as he did. Pelagius couldn't reconcile. He, Pelagius, another theologian in the early church, says, it's just not right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm put here, and if indeed my nature is sinful, and I can do absolutely nothing about it, God has to be the one to change me, then that's just not fair. It's not right that I can do nothing about this condition that I'm in. Why did he create me in the first place when I had no choice in the matter? And then condemn me for, for sin when I had no choice about that. It's just part of my nature. That may seem logical. It may seem extremely logical. In fact, a lot of Christians think that way today. But such thinking is man-based and it's not, it can't be supported in, by Scripture in any way. Let's see where that thinking led Pelagius. His view of sin was first that Adam's sin affected only himself. Thus, Adam's sin has nothing to do with us today whatsoever. We all stand innocent before the Lord, just like Adam did before he fell. And we do our best to live in a manner that pleases him. Now, now let me clarify something. A lot of Christians believe that it's not fair for me to be in sin and have no choice whatsoever about my eternal destiny... But they don't believe that we are not responsible for sin and that we live in this pre-fallen condition. There's a separation here in the way that, that people think. Pelagius, though, this is where Pelagius' logic took him. In fact, since there is no sin that is the foundation of who we are and at the core of our being, it's possible to live free from sin. So <clears throat> Pelagius rejected that notion of inherited sin <coughs> and believe that we are responsible for only the things that we are able to do. If I have to sin, then I'm not responsible for that. I'm responsible for only the things that I can do. Now, it won't surprise you that the church rejected Pelagius' view of sin very quickly and accepted Augustine's view. <coughs> it may surprise you <coughs> that Pelagius' <coughs> view of sin is what the great majority of people believe today, including many in the church. Let's look at our text to see how Paul quotes Old Testament Scripture to peel away layer of, after layer of lies and denial about our sin until we stand naked and exposed before a holy and righteous God. Who is it that's under the influence and condemnation of sin? Non-religious people? No, everybody. <clears throat> All are under sin. All morally upright, law-minded people as well as the lawless and those who care nothing about anybody but themselves. We're all under sin and stand guilty before God. There's not one single person that meets the standard God requires to stand in His presence, and that is perfection, of course, and we can never attain it. Furthermore, we don't seek after God. <clears throat> Any inclination that we have toward the Lord is the result of the Holy Spirit wooing us toward Jesus and the Father. Now, we're made in the image of God. 
And so it, it is natural for us to want to worship a creator. But sin messes it all up. And we begin worshiping <clears throat> creeping things, crawling things in Romans 1, or creeping things like automobiles, you know, crawling things like other people. We, we're going to worship something. Most of us in our day worship ourselves. Well, ultimately, that's what we all end up doing. We make God in our own image, and then we worship him rather than the other way around. Apart from God's Spirit guiding us toward the true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will never be on a path toward Him. Never. Verse 11 is a verse that many people, even Christians, simply do not believe. We talk about finding the Lord. I found the Lord. I used to say that all the time. I found the Lord when I was 18. And then over the years it began to dawn on me. I, I didn't find him. He found me. He pursued me. He came after me. It became clearer as the years went by. <clears throat> that all those things that I thought that I did in my journey to seek him were actually him drawing me toward himself. Now understand this. When you open the word or when you hear preaching or when someone tells you about Jesus and you, you start getting convicted of your sin and you say, I need to do something about this. That's God leading you to do it. It's him working in your heart and mind. I'm not saying it's, that you're, you're, you're like a robot. He works in your heart and you make that move towards him because of what he has done for you. It may feel like you're making a decision to move toward him, but he is moving you in that direction. Romans 3 makes it clear that our sinful state leads us to commit sinful acts. And by the way, what I've just said, I don't want to believe it. Honestly, I don't. But Romans and all of Scripture, but particularly the book of Romans, and the way the argument is laid out, leaves me no choice. I want to believe that I've got as much to do with this as anybody. And, and, and God shows me something and I have the good sense to believe it. Romans 3 makes it clear that our sinful state leads us to commit sinful acts. We sin with our mouths, our feet run towards sin, even to murder. We destroy peace rather than build it, and we live as though God doesn't exist. Why? There is no fear of God, no proper understanding of His righteousness and our sinfulness in our hearts and minds. But since our conscience demands a certain level of, of right living, we pursue God through the law. A law that can never produce life. Romans 8 will tell us it, it's not possible for the law to give life because of the, because of the weakness of sinful flesh. The law, in fact, reveals our sin and our best course of action is to sh shut our mouths and stand before the Lord, acknowledging our sin and come before him in repentance. And so ends Paul's lengthy address about the reality of man's condemnation and ruin before God because of his sin, inherited sin, sin that we were all born with. Next week, we're going to get to the good news that Jesus died to do something about our sinful state. He didn't leave us this way. 
Man was ruined in the garden when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And we all have that disease, but God didn't leave us in that condition. In fact, after spending three weeks uh, talking about the reality of sin, this good news that we're going to talk about next week is going to be incredible news. Which, of course, is one of the reasons that I am convinced that God spent so much time laying out the case against us. Now would be a good time to look at our definition of the gospel. I imagine it's going to make a lot more sense than it did five weeks ago when we first began this series. The just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we can't, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross, and to show his power over sin in the resurrection, so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. Now I would say that there's a pretty good chance that some of you have never seen your way yourself in the way that Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20 lays out. I mean, you've recognized that your behavior is not really... <laughs> up to the standard that you would even have for yourself, that you would like for it to be. And you vow to do better, hoping that your good works will make you acceptable. And when you get there, the good works will outweigh the bad works. I would imagine, you know, for most who are dependent on works, the good works, works almost always outweigh the bad works. Not for some. Some, like Martin Luther, just stand condemned in, in their minds all the time until they see the wonderful news that the righteousness of God is being revealed to those who walk by faith, to those who live by faith. Put their trust in Jesus because there's nothing that we can do. But for the most of us, we weigh it out and we say, well, yeah. And the way we do that is we say, I'm not as bad as that guy. We do a lot of that in the body as well because it, this, this, this gospel thing is not just get saved and then it's it. This cycle repeats itself. Ruin redemption relationship. But we find ourselves always cycling back to the bottom which is why we need Jesus so desperately long, way long after we're saved. We need the truth and the reality of life in Jesus to come through our hearts that our relationships will be what they ought to be. Well, if you have always been hoping your good works are there, maybe this morning everything looks different. You see yourself exactly as God says you are. You're sinful, hopelessly apart from him. May I say to you, if that's the case, a religious experience, not a religious experience, nor a religious lifestyle even, will ever make you right with God. It's, it's not enough. Our efforts will never be good enough. It's only a right relationship with Jesus and a relationship with Jesus that will make you God's child. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship.
according to our definition of the gospel, that rests firmly on the foundation of Scripture and will be backed up by the book of Romans every step of the way in this series. The good news of Jesus will only be good news to you if you repent of your sins, your sin, and believe in Him. We're going to talk more about what it means to repent because that's kind of a, it's a difficult word sometimes to get your mind around. What does it mean to repent? I hear about repent. What does that mean? We're going to talk about it in just a moment. But one more verse (coughs) I want us to consider that tells us the state of our being in our sin before we know Jesus. And these words came from the lip lips of our Savior. In fact, in John 3, 18, where Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God. Whoever believes in him, and he's talking about himself. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Apart from Jesus we are ruined. With Jesus, we have eternal life, free from condemnation. Repentance is the first step towards God. You cannot have faith and trust in Jesus without repentance. Because we've got to acknowledge our condition before the Lord. It's not enough to just say, oh, that's cool. Okay, I'll believe in Jesus. Remember, so many of the verses in Scripture, like Acts 16.31, Acts 16, you remember the story Paul and Silas had been preaching in Philippi and the the city leaders threw him into jail, beat him terribly, I'm certain, and threw him into jail. And, and, And they're in the prison at night singing and praising God. Imagine that, singing and praising God. They've been beaten. And thrown in jail, uh, which I imagine those conditions were uh, far better than our conditions today. Don't you don't you suppose? (laughs) I, I think not. Singing and praising God. Earthquake. Chains are loosed. The jailer is about to kill himself. And Paul says, no, no, don't do that. We're all here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And and and. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The man had repented. It's very obvious repentance has taken place. He's saying, I'm ruined. I'm undone. Oh, help me. What do I have to do? Paul says, believe it. And we don't know that that's all of his conversation, but you can't just take a little verse here, a verse there, and pull it out and say, well, that's the whole deal. And think about it in your way. When you take the whole of Scripture, it's clear. Repentance and and belief are The two elements that are required for salvation. Repentance is the first step towards God. Now, it's a step, remember, that God initiates. What does it mean for one to repent of his or her sin? Since for those who don't know Christ, it means to see yourself as God sees you. Not, well, yeah, I guess I I got a problem here. But to see yourself as utterly hopeless and condemned before a holy and righteous God. Confess that to the Lord. It means that you turn away from your sins. Now, now be careful about this. Because it would be very easy to take repentance, this definition of repentance, to turn from your sins and to make it a thing of works. 
to say, I'm not going to do bad things anymore. I'm going to start doing good things. In fact, those of you who were saved a little bit later, I can imagine there have been there were many times in your life before you were saved that you said, I'm not going to live that way anymore. And you were going to turn over that new leaf, we used to say. Turn it over. And <clears throat> things are going to be different from now on. And they just weren't. In fact, I imagine many of you as believers have that same struggle. I'm, I'm not going to do this anymore. And yet you find yourself doing it. Repentance is an attitude that says, I'm done with this, Lord. I got no hope of living this life the way that it needs to be lived without your help. But I know this, I hate my sin. I'm sick of it. And I renounce it and I choose you. Our confession of sin acknowledges that we could never be good enough to please God. Repentance does, however, acknowledge that the way we've been living is wrong. And we need Jesus as our Savior. Jesus is eligible to be our Savior because He came and lived a perfect life. In the definition, He lived the life that we can't, that it's impossible for us to live. He kept the law perfectly. That same little section of Romans 8 is going to tell us. He did what we couldn't do. Thus, He was an eligible substitute in sacrifice. In our place. And when we repent of our sins from the heart. We must also trust Jesus and his death on the cross. As that perfect substitute for my sin. That's what it means. To repent and believe. And thus be saved. For Christians. Repentance is pretty much. The same hard attitude. It involves confessing the sins. Of our heart that that have offended God. You remember last week, Sean was talking about how David had offended almost the entire nation of Israel. And yet when he came to the Lord in Psalm 51, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. He didn't mean that he hadn't sinned against any of the others. <clears throat> but he just meant this sin is first and foremost above everything else. And it's offense. It's an offense against you. And Christians have to recognize that. Repentance also includes a change of heart about our sin and a commitment to God's ways as we yield ourselves to His Word, His will, His power. Recognizing that we can't please Him living in the strength of our flesh. We get into a lot more details about that later. <clears throat> so before we close this morning, let's just make sure that we've, we've considered everything we need to about repentance. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 10 and 11. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief <clears throat> has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. When my sin has caused me grief, when it's <clears throat> hurt my heart, how do I know if it's worldly grief or a, a godly grief? Well, worldly grief often manifests itself in that 
I'm sorry because I've been caught in a sin. I'm sorry because of the consequences of sin. It's, there's shame and embarrassment and more than a little self-pity, which looks for ways to blame others for one's sin. It's totally me-focused, and it fails to get at the very root of the problem, which, ironically, is me. Since the real problem is not addressed, worldly grief not only fails to affect a real change in me, but ultimately it leads to death because I take God out of the picture while going through the motions of sorrow and confession. If we're going to grieve over sin, far better that this grief is a godly grief rather than a worldly grief. Godly grief recognizes that I've been created and loved by a good and holy God, and that my sin is an affront to his righteousness, and thus it is an offense to him. And so it is a genuine sorrow for offending God. <clears throat> You've had that sorrow before, haven't you? Where <clears throat> you've offended someone, someone that you love. You've hurt someone. And you say, I am so sorry. And you're just, you're, you're hurt deeply that you've hurt this other person. That's the kind of, Grief and sorrow that it is. For the Christ follower, godly grief will recognize the the hurt that my sin has caused others and be genuinely sorry for my actions. True repentance paves the way for lasting change in the way that I live. And you know what? Most of us, at a certain point, just become content in accepting who we are and never really dealing with sin, just trying to work around it. The only hope that I have for lasting change in my life is to truly repent of my sin. I can't repent of my sin until I acknowledge it for what it is. And true repentance from my sin for the non-believer... And the believer alike always leads to an absolute belief in Jesus' death as payment for my sins and for the ability to live this life as he has called me to do with him living through me. Well, we'll talk more about Jesus' sacrifice for us next Sunday morning. Way more. Today our focus has been on repentance. Repentance of our sin, which is the beginning of good news. Let's bow for prayer.